Welcome to Episode 11 of PCS Reads, the summer reading podcast for Parkview Center School and any other summer readers who want to join us. I'm your host, Laura, Parkview School Librarian. Each Friday this summer, we have had a new episode of this podcast, and after this, we have two more Fridays left before school starts again at Parkview, and that means only two more episodes. Here is this episode's reading challenge. Read a book where the author or illustrator has at least one initial that is the same as one of yours. You get imaginary bonus points if you share more than one initial in common with the author or illustrator. You can still send in an idea for a reading challenge. Visit the podcast website at pcsreads.podbean.com and click on the link that says sign the guest book. From there, you can submit your challenge idea. So far on the podcast, we have heard the first six chapters of The Girl Who Drank the Moon. This week, we have something a little different. Earlier this summer, author Kelly Barnhill wrote a short prequel to The Girl Who Drank the Moon, which was printed in the magazine Entertainment Weekly. In a moment, we will hear her read part one of the prequel. But first, here is a bit from Kelly talking about writing the prequel story and two of my favorite characters, Glurk and Firion. fun time writing this prequel story but it allowed me to like get into kind of how dragons are raised and the the role of dragon mothers who tell their eggs when it's time to hatch um, and also tell them when it's time to grow up and so usually that happens really early on which is why dragons don't really know very much about themselves because they just grow up and leave and and then they're by themselves and so really most most information about dragons comes from non-dragon sources but Furion was a little bit different and also his um, that was interrupted because um, uh, because of what had happened to his mother and Zan of course was very um, nervous about sad memories for um, all kinds of different reasons and so the this sort of like um, extended childhood uh, just kind of stuck for a long time like all three of those characters are kind of stuck in time um, and really it isn't until they um, start raising a baby and a baby by its nature is unstuck in time like a baby is just gonna grow um, and there's no putting the pause button on that there's no there's no altering that as much as we would really like to my infant is writing college applications this summer um, like that is a that is that is a trajectory that I would have wanted to put a pause button on, but I can't, right? And so they can't either. Uh, so in a lot of ways, Glurk and Furion became this uh, this way that um, that I could, you know, sort of take a step back from kind of the intensity of the situation. But also, it became sort of another another pathway towards growing up. I 
I love supporting characters. I love the supporting characters. I love, you know, really getting a lot of personality and and goofiness in the in the supporting characters. And I sometimes spend more time writing them than I do my main characters uh, because they're more fun. So maybe I should rethink how I do that. And another quirk that I have that like comes up again, and I will try not to do this and then I can't help it, is having uh, stories inside of stories inside of stories. Uh, once you learn how to write in a frame narrative, it's really hard to write anything but frame narratives. And similarly, like once you like um, start writing a story that has this like folkloric underpinning to the world, it's really hard to write anything else. So um, uh, I think that is probably my main quirk. Like pretty much all of my stories have some kind of folkloric underpinning because the stories that we tell ourselves help to shape the world as we see it, and sometimes it shapes it incorrectly. Um, and so that is like, that's interesting to me. Sometimes um, uh, the shape of the narrative can alter how we understand the truth of the matter. And given that we're at the, in election season, whoever shapes the narrative shapes how we think about truth. And that's a lot of power, you know? And now, here is author Kelly Barnhill reading part one of the prequel to The Girl Who Drank the Moon. In which a lost girl discovers bees. Part one. The girl lay on the table in the central workshop dreaming of bees again. Or still... Perhaps she had always been dreaming of bees. I told you this was a bad idea, a man said from somewhere. His voice set off a flood of murmurs, or they sounded like murmurs. Perhaps they were more bees. In her dream, the bees landed on her body, great, soft, swarming masses of them, all pollen and summer and sting. They gathered on her hands and face. They covered her skin. She wasn't afraid. Why should she be? They were just bees. Bees, she thought, delighting at the swarm in her dream. Bees, bees, bees. Did she say something? The man from somewhere said. Other voices murmured in response. Perhaps they were other people. The girl hoped they were bees. She's speaking. One voice said, No, said another, she's listening. Blossom, her dream voice said, Petal and tree. The voices gasped. Honey and stamen, leaf and root, each word once sounded gave her a thrill. She had only just learned them. She had known them all her life. Both things were true. She was missing something something important, and the missing of it gave her an ache in her chest. She is sorrowing, someone said. A hungry voice. Step back, the man said with a growl. And anyway, she's not sorrowing, and she's not speaking, neither. She's singing. Don't you dolts know a song when you hear it? The murmurs grew louder. Was she sorrowing? The girl didn't know. She didn't she wasn't sure what that meant. 
Was she singing? She had no idea. She didn't know her name. She didn't know anything outside of what her dreams had taught her. And then she looked around, blinked. She's awake, a man said, his spyglasses falling from his, the braces on his face. She's alive, a woman said, furiously scribbling notes on a stack of papers. The girl pulled her knees to her chest. She didn't know where she was or who those people were. She missed her dream. She also missed something else, something she couldn't remember. The loss of the bees and the tree were so real, so immediate, that she felt her heart splinter in her chest. Come back, she choked. Her mouth was dry. Her lips had begun to crack. How long had she been sleeping? How she sorrows, said a woman at the back, her face hidden by shadow. The girl could only see the way the woman paced along the wall, back and forth, like an animal in a cage. The room was crowded with men and women in strange clothes and an odd assortment of tools. One man wore metal extensions on his fingers on the le of his left hand, each ending in a bright point. Tiny baubles hand hung in another man's silver mustache, catching the light each time he spoke and sparkling like stars. A small woman moved about on mechanical legs that made her the tallest one in the room. The legs creaked each time she walked. A woman with green skin, had a third eye positioned right below her throat. And then that woman in the back, separate from everyone else in the room, pacing and pacing and pacing. The girl stared at the adults. The adults stared at the girl. And like a sudden storm, the questions began. Tell us in detail how you feel. Any pain? Any pain? Anywhere? What taste do you have in your mouth right now? Is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? Exactly how sad are you? Can you express it in numbers? Earthquake or wave? Your magic, I mean. When it arrived, please be specific. Have you been able to affect any transformations in your dreams? Will you tell us when you can? Any current murderous tendencies toward Anyone, specific or in general, we'd really like to know. The questions came thick and fast without any explanation or context. No one was kind. The girl closed her eyes. The strange adults with their strange tools continued to pester, and so the girl drew herself into a tight knot, laying her forehead on her knees and gripping her ankles, and she let out a long high scream. The table beneath her shattered, sending stony shards scattering cutting skin and dumping ink and careening into open eyes. The commotion and hullabaloo and panics coming and going would have delighted the girl had she been watching it from afar. And then she felt a sharp knock at the back of her head and saw a brief flash of light followed by nothing at all. Zazimos, an ancient wizard in the group of magicians in the group of magicians, trapped, he felt, in a sea of nincompoops, couldn't stand this persistent nonsense for another second. Enough he bellowed, using a combination of a few swift kicks 
two well-aimed spells, and enough foul language to make even the saltiest, saltiest among them blush. He cleared the room of witches and magicians and wizards and scholars within a few moments of the table's explosion. No one was happy with him, and but that wasn't particularly unusual. I say, manners! This is for science, you old fool! Science! He refused to dignify their protestations with a response. Science, he thought. You idiots have no idea what that means. He stomped his foot against the granite floor, causing it to ripple like water, knocking the last of the magicians to their knees and carrying them in wave after wave into the hall. The door slammed behind them. The old castle groaned, and Zosimos could hear the crackle of spidery fissures along the pillars and beams. Sorry, old thing, he whispered, directing a spell for healing at the foundations. A temporary salve, alas, but at least at least it was better from than nothing. Zosimos looked down at the tangle of arms and legs and patchwork clothing, and long braids sprawled over the rubble on the ground. Magic, too. So much magic. Poor child. She never asked for any of this. She would have to be moved, the wizard knew, away from the magicians and their incessant meddling, for now, anyway. The question was how. Zosimos eyed her warily. The girl had obliterated a table made from a block of the densest stone in the world. Was it the squeeze of her eyelids that had caused the table explosion, or the note of her scream? Magic manifests differently depending on who touches it, and even more differently in the rare cases of full bodily enmagicment like this. The changes inflicted on her were irrevocable. She was enmagicked forever. He took care before picking her up. Come now, little thing, he said, first fitting a leather apron reinforced with lead over his clothing, then sliding his hands into iron gloves. Even then, he winced when he curled his arms under her back and hefted her to his chest. They shouldn't have done this to her. They should have asked me first. Such things were supposedly only possible with babies. Half-grown children required a process that Zosimos did not want to think about. The descriptions alone turned his stomach. It was a miracle that it had worked. It was a miracle that she hadn't died. Bodily enmagicment was a rare thing, only attempted once in a generation or more. Zosimos had never met anyone else enmagicked as he was, and he had assumed that he was the only one in the world. And perhaps he had been. Until now. Bunch of irresponsible dunderheads, he muttered as he gingerly made his way through the gap in the wall that only he could see, down the hidden stairs, into the labyrinth of cellars, and along the bottom corridor that opened out into an underground stream. The stream poured out in, of a little cave in a heavily wooded area on the western slopes, a good ways away from the castle itself. No one else knew about the gap or the stairs, or the corridor, or the stream, or the cave. They belonged to Zosimos alone. The girl was heavy, heavier than she sh heavier than she looked. Blasted magic, the wizard grumbled. Is that you, old friend? A rumbly voice said from a short way down the mountain. 
Four heavy paws shifted on the stony slope. A tremendous tail uncurled into the green, and a magnificent pair of jaws widened in a yawn. Enin, Zazimo said. The scales of the enormous dragon's back gleamed brightly, illuminating the wood. At least the day was cloudy. On bright days, it was difficult to look at the tremendous creature head-on. With humility and grace, Zazimos huffed. He had difficulty, difficulty remembering the words, and he struggled under the weight of the girl. His arms began to shake. Oh, bother! There was a particular pattern of gestures and phrases with which one was to greet a dragon. Eye contact followed by eye aversion, a bow, a clasp of hands, and a salute. Zazimos had counted Enin among his few friends for nearly a century now, but he did not take that, that, that friendship for granted. Dragons are sensitive, after all, and self-conscious. Respect matters. Forgive me! His breath changed from gasps to painful wheezing. For putting my manners aside, he crinkled his face to divert the rivulets of sweat from his eyes. This one is heavy! The dragon inclined her head. The trees bent as she pushed forward. She raised one glittering eyebrow. Then her eyes went suddenly wide. They didn't, she breathed. They did, Zazimo sighed. She hasn't been, Anine whispered. Is she like you? Alas, she has been, and she is. I was not consulted, obviously. He stumbled toward a grassy hollow and gently lowered the girl to, to the ground. He sank back on his haunches. Troublesome thing, he thought. Already so troublesome. Underneath the dragon's broad belly, an egg the size of a small basket sat on a small pile of feathers and moss. It wriggled and smoked and vibrated. Zazimos knew better than to look too closely at a dragon's egg. Not hatched yet, is he? Zazimos asked politely, keeping his eyes on the mother. Not yet. Soon. I will tell him when it is time. The girl rolled onto her side, murmuring in her sleep. Any mishaps yet? The mother dragon asked. Zazimos shrugged. Just an explosion. He creased his brow. Could have been worse. In any case, she managed to spook the lot of them. It bought me some time. The great dragon inclined her head even further until her massive jaws were nearly touching the girl. She closed her eyes and inhaled deeply. The girl did not stir. Honey, the dragon said. Pollen and wax. Were her parents beekeepers? Unknown, Zazimo sighed. Well, the mother dragon pulled her haunches under her shim the shimmering curve of her torso and uncurled her long neck until the top of her head was nearly level with the trees. She tilted her skull to one side and then the other, cracking her spine. Then she leaned onto her forearms, tilting and thrusting her face into the magician's. Even though he knew Enin was his friend, Zazimos felt his knees start to shake. She isn't staying here. Anine's voice was quieter than one would expect from a, a creature so loud, loud, from a creature so large. But even in its quiet, it shook the mountains and sparked a tremble in the old wizard's bones. 
Oh, but she is, Zazimo said, hoping he sounded braver than he felt. She doesn't have anywhere else to go. Not yet, anyway. And what about the baby? Anine said, her eyes narrowing into two bright slits. I cannot imagine any spell, no matter how volatile, that could possibly penetrate a dragon's shell. The girl must stay here, away from the magicians, while I try to to understand the best way to help her. In the meantime, you must do what you can to find out her name. Try to help her remember. Also, he gave the massive dragon a, spe- a skeptical stare. Try not to frighten her, will you? She's delicate. On the morning of her first day in the dragon's lair, the girl opened her eyes, saw the enormous creature looming above her, saw the intolerable brightness of the monster's scales, saw the merciless sheen of the razor-sharp edges of each terrible tooth, screamed and fainted. Oh, dear, Anine muttered. Because Anine was a very good mother, or she hoped she would be some day, she found a bit of moss and put it under the girl to give her something soft to lie upon. With the freshly plucked down from the nine geese that she had eaten for lunch, she made a nest around the girl to keep her warm. She pulled a honeycomb from a nearby hive and mixed it with fresh spring water and dripped it little by little into the girl's mouth. The second morning, the girl woke and saw that the dragon was not only looming over her with those massive jaws, but was apparently stroking her with the padded underside of those cruelly tipped claws. The creature opened its mouth. The girl screamed again and was once again struck unconscious with fright. Bother, the dragon said. Because it couldn't be helped, but because it couldn't be helped, she continued to care for the child as before. On the morning of the third day, the dragon was ready. She crouched a little ways away from from the girl and tried to make herself as small as could be. The girl opened her eyes, stretched, looked around a bit, and... Wait! Anine said before the girl could scream. I'm not going to hurt you. The girl pressed her lips together. She wrinkled her brow. She looked as though she was trying to remember something. Finally, she spoke. monster the girl said, her lips shaking as she formed the word. Truly, I am not. I am a friend. Large tears appeared in the girl's eyes. Mother, she managed, her lips chipping on the sounds. Alas, you are missing yours. But I am a mother, or I soon will be, and I will take care of you. This was too much, Anine realized, for the girl had begun to cry, huge tears bubbling out of her eyes and falling in gushes to the ground. And before the dragon could comfort the child, the tears had soaked the moss, causing it to enlarge upon itself until it was the size and shape and structure of a small house with an open door and shutters on the windows. Moreover, each feather touched by a tear became a toddling gosling, stumbling and tumbling through the grass, looking for bugs. The girl was so shocked she could hardly speak. How? she began, her voice tumbling over the simplest words. How did that happen? The girl, or sorry, the dragon cleared her throat. Right, she said. Listen, 
you should probably sit down. Oh, I see that you are. This is a, there is a small side matter to discuss re regarding your magic. And patiently, tenderly, the dragon explained things to the girl. And the great sinewy bulk of her crept slowly toward the shaking child, curled a wing around those tiny shoulders, and eventually scooped her close holding her tight and protecting her from harm. Tune in next week to hear Kelly Barnhill read part two of her prequel to The Girl Who Drank the Moon. Special thank you to Algonquin Young Readers, a division of Workman Publishing, for their support of this podcast. Each episode of PCS Reads ends with a few book recommendations. It's not too late to call in a book recommendation for the podcast. If you have a book you would like to recommend call the PCS Reads Book Recommendation Hotline at 612-568-5355 and leave a message. The message you leave will be saved and sent into the podcast. Here are this episode's book recommendations. Hi! This is Hazel Mitchell. I'm the illustrator of Imani's Moon and Where Do Fairies Go When It Snows? And my new book as debut author and illustrator is Toby. It's about a young boy and his father who've just moved house and decide to adopt a dog. But Toby has a tough time fitting into his new life and gets so much wrong, even with the help of his boy. Is he the right dog for them after all? Or will he have to go back to the rescue shelter? Toby is published on September 13th by Candlewick Press. One book I would love to recommend to you is Max's Secret, a debut middle grade novel by picture book author Lynn Plaud. It's another story about a boy who moves home and adopts a dog, Maxie, who is deaf. She wiggles her way into the heart of Timony, who's bullied at school and helps him cope when the going gets rough. With a diverse cast, authentic narrator and a blend of humour, drama and wisdom, it's funny, bittersweet and full of heart. It's published by Nancy Paulson on August 23rd. So, that's two misfit books starring adopted dogs for two very different age groups coming to you this fall. I hope you'll take a look at them. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Radley. I would like to recommend Hattie Big Sky and Hattie Ever After. They are historical fiction, which is my favorite genre. The books take place in the, the early 1900s. In the first book, Hattie Big Sky, Hattie is only 16 years old when she heads west to finish her uncle's homestead claim all on her own. In the next book, Hattie Ever After, she has many more adventures and challenges. I hope you like them.
Hi, this is Laura, and I have not recommended any books yet on the podcast. So here is a picture book I am really excited about that just came out in stores. It's called This Is Not a Cat. It is written by David LaRochelle and illustrated by Mike Winutka. You might know another book that they made together called Moo. Moo was the 2015 winner of the Star of the North Award. It is the story of a cow's adventure told using only one word, moo. This is not a cat is similar and is a story told using only five words. This is not a cat. And just like moo, there are some very funny moments in this story. Before I end this episode, I have a clue for you about some exciting news. Someone will be visiting Parkview in September. My clue for who is coming has to do with what you do when someone asks you to say cheese. If you have an idea about who is visiting Parkview, send me your guess through the online guestbook at pcsreads.podbean.com. I will share the answer. On the next episode. Now, that's all for this episode of PCS Reads. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will join us again for the last remaining episodes. Until then, happy end of summer and happy reading. <laughs>